oh my God, it's a little fried bug. <laughs> it's disappointingly great in that <laughs> I was excited to try cricket and be able to say, like, like I'm, tr- I, I'm struggling to get beyond the cricketness of this cricket, but it just tastes like, what does it taste like? It tastes like, um, here's a little like popcorn. Do people say that? Do yeah. it taste like popcorn? A lot of people say popcorn. It is still slightly alarming that it looks like a shriveled, dark brown, fried bug with all the limbs cut off. The legs are taken off because, uh, you know, early market research, people didn't like how the legs got stuck in their teeth. <laughs> Uh-oh. I see a stray leg. Or is that well, is that an antenna? That's an ovipositor. Uh, that's an ovipositor? Yeah, that's the female egg-laying thing. So, yeah, there I was, eating cricket ovipositor in a converted warehouse behind a Burlington code factory near San Francisco. I was in the headquarters of a company called Tiny Farms. So here we are. This is our R&D lab. Uh, So we've been basically over the last two and a half years in this space, figuring out how to produce crickets as a commodity protein. Let me be honest with you. Two months ago, I would have considered everything about this scene totally disgusting. Then I started doing a little bit of research on the American diet, specifically meat in the American diet. And two simple facts led me to this humble cricket farm. First, eating meat is really, really bad for the world. I could read you a bunch of stats right here, but there's one that really sticks with me. One-sixth of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are directly attributable to raising livestock like cows and chicken. Cutting meat out of your diet would reduce global warming more than giving up your car. And here's the second thing that's true. Americans don't really care. In 1970, the average American consumed about 200 pounds of meat per year. Today, after four decades of factory farming photos and vegetarian movements and economic papers, American meat consumption has gone up by 20 pounds. Now, of course, there's an obvious solution here. Just force people to become vegetarians. But that hasn't worked. 95% of Americans, including me, eat meat. And it's not because we haven't heard the case for vegetarianism. It's just hard to shame people into giving up something they love. But what if we solved this problem with more options? Like better plant-based foods, designer burgers, and... Yes, bugs. Today, the world isn't just eating meat. Meat is eating the world. For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. Is there a sustainable way to produce the amount of beef we're currently producing for the foreseeable future? My opinion is... No. Christine Costello is a professor at the University of Missouri. She studies the environmental impact of raising animals. In 2017, we produced 25.3 billion pounds of beef. Oh, my God. Right, so it's a lot of animals. The way that we're producing beef right now is not ecologically friendly and probably unsustainable. 
First, there's the land. Animal agriculture takes up 30% of the Earth's land mass, the equivalent of Asia. You know, the available cropland in this country is like roughly 180 million hectares, and we're using about 160 million hectares. So we're kind of butting up against using all the available cropland that we have. Second, there's the food. More than half of the soybeans produced in the U.S. aren't for humans. They're for the animals we eat. The majority of corn is going to feed livestock, and so the cow is eating a lot of corn and a lot of soy, which means that it's responsible for a lot of fertilizer input. The fertilizer is third. The biggest thing in most food products is the application of nitrogen fertilizer to land. It'll release lots of N2O emissions, um, nitrous oxides, and those are 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide in terms of the potential for warming the atmosphere. Finally, the cow itself is basically a mooing greenhouse gas factory. Just breathing, it's exhaling methane, you know? That's kind of weird. Oh, oh, farting, (laughs) also. (laughs) So added up, the land, the feed, the fertilizer, the farts. I think eating meat, especially the high-intensity meats, every day with every meal is problematic. We're just making a lot of it, and it's very resource-intensive. Beef products and dairy are more greenhouse gas expensive than any other food that we currently make. So then you start to kind of fall into looking at things like insects. Um, Well, this is a tent of cricket poop. Um. (laughs) We're back at Tiny Farms with Jenna Brentano and her husband, Andrew. Six years ago, they had normal jobs. Jenna was in the fine arts, and Andrew was at a tech startup. We're thinking about what can we do with our lives that's going to become more interesting, more meaningful, and, uh, you know, make a positive impact for the future. And uh, somewhere in there, we kind of uh, came across this idea that we should be using insects for protein. And so, you know, we went out in the yard and we caught some grasshoppers. Uh, It was in the fall out in Maine. Yeah, when we caught those grasshoppers, we froze them to kill them, and we fried them in a pan with just, like, some oil and salt, and they actually turned from green to red, like lobsters, and they were delicious. So we thought, you know what? This could work. And it did work. Today, Tiny Farms sells fried crickets to a baseball stadium, cricket powder to grocery stores, and more crickets to local chefs and dog food companies. But I wanted to know, what does a cricket farm actually look like? Yeah, anyway, here is some... So I followed Andrew and Jenna to the back of their R&D department, where I came across what looked like a closet. A closet swarming with insects. Yeah, it's a big cardboard jungle gym, and that's what they like. They like those dark little spaces. They can cling on to the texture of the cardboard. It's a compostable material, and we can reuse it several times. Well, how many crickets would you estimate are, are here in this room that we're in? Uh, probably uh, 200, 300,000. Now, maybe you think eating crickets is just plain gross. I certainly did. But from a global perspective, we're the weird ones. Two billion people in the world eat bugs as a part of their standard diet. That's roughly the number of people who own a smartphone. And in a way... Eating cow is just as weird. You know, cows, you've put all this energy and resource into growing these animals, and then you're eating only 40% of them. 
like a 1,600 to 2,000 pound cow, you get about 500 pounds of dressed beef out of it. We can get much, much higher value out of something like uh, cricket. Why are crickets more energy efficient than, say, cows or chicken? So fundamentally, like the biology of insects is very efficient because they're essentially cold-blooded. So they're not constantly burning calories to keep themselves warm. The simplicity of their, you know, biology, they just very efficiently convert what they eat into uh, their body mass. Crickets are great for farming. They've got a short life cycle. It's six weeks from hatch to harvest. To have a shorter lifespan is good for the farming cycle. We can harvest more often. They are happy in a higher density. So that makes it conducive to an efficient indoor rearing livestock. Crickets are everything that cows and chickens aren't. They don't require half of America's corn because they'll eat almost anything. They die fast. They enjoy tight spaces. And, oh yeah, they're kind of good for us. So pound for pound, crickets versus beef, crickets have higher protein, much healthier fats, plus they've got this healthy fiber. And they use really just a fraction of the amount of land, less water, a fraction of the feed, and almost no greenhouse gas emissions compared with beef. But here's another big difference between crickets and cows. Americans don't want cricket for dinner. The total edible insect market in the U.S. is about $55 million. That's peanuts. Technically, that's one-thirtieth of what Americans spend on peanuts. So Andrew and Jenna are realistic. Maybe humans won't eat crickets yet, but another household member will. We've got a really strong focus right now on providing for pet food. Because in the U.S., pets are eating over 30 billion pounds of meat every year. And around the world, you know, the pet food market is growing. And pet ownership is growing. America's 160 million cats and dogs consume 25% of this country's meat. If the big goal here is to save the planet while still enjoying food, perhaps nothing makes more sense than forcing our pets to eat bugs. Because let's face it, Americans don't want to stop eating meat. If you take all the insect food companies and add the companies focused on plant-based meats, veggie burgers, tofu turkey, meatless meatballs, the entire imitation meat industry is still eight times less than the U.S. spends on pet food. The vast majority of people that can afford to eat hundreds of pounds of meat every year do just that. Perhaps the only way we're going to get humans to eat fewer animals is to discover some miracle by which people can eat real meat without eating slaughtered animals. Well, you start with cells. They divide and they make muscle tissue for meat. A quarter pounder of stem cells. Coming right up. If technology is the ability to engineer new products, food was perhaps civilization's first tech industry. The very existence of cities, the foundation of the modern world, was made possible by a revolution in agriculture. 11,000 years ago, we domesticated goats and wheat. Within a few thousand years, we added chicken and grapes to the menu. But in a way, food tech is in a prolonged slump. 
I don't know what was the last time I even heard of a new food being invented, really. That's Isha Datar, the executive director of a food tech nonprofit called New Harvest. She wants to start a new agricultural revolution. So right now we're funding five different researchers at various universities who are working on how to produce meat from cells. Describe the concept of making food from cells in a really simple way. Like, what what does this mean? If you want to grow a piece of meat, you have to have cells from an animal. So we would take a little sample of a muscle cell, for example, from a chicken, and we would just grow that up in a plate. Muscle cells really like to attach onto a surface in order to grow and mature, like in our in our bodies. That you know, to become three D, they need to be attached onto things. So, you provide a scaffolding material for those cells to adhere onto, and that muscle cell would grow and divide and become essentially a chicken muscle, which of course can become chicken meat. There's a lot of plant based companies out there too, like burgers made out of beans. Do you fund that sort of thing? We focus exclusively on growing animal cells because it is the most neglected thing. The plant-based stuff is awesome, and I think it, you know, is here in many ways. There's, I still think there's research to be done, but I don't see it as so neglected as this other type of work. I, I think philanthropy is best suited for stuff that is aimed at the future, and I think that the plant-based stuff is aimed at the nearer future. This is a little bit mind-blowing, and I wonder when you tell people that you can do this, that you can grow meat from cells, (laughs) what do they say? Uh, People accuse us of having no culinary interest whatsoever, that we're just approaching food as this really utilitarian thing. I often draw back cellular agriculture to the first time we used biotechnology, which was in food when we started fermenting food thousands of years ago. Back then, we just had milk, and we never imagined that we wanted milk to be hard and melt and stink and have bubbles in it and all these kinds of things. But now I would say a lot of adults prefer cheese to milk, and I think it's a very popular thing. Yes, I'm raising my me hand. Too. You're yes. raising your hand. <laughs> and there's so many types of cheeses, and that's a, that's a completely different culinary experience. So I think as we introduce these new methods of production at the cellular level, again, we actually could open up culinary opportunities more than we have in a, in a long time. Culinary opportunities like lab-grown beef If you would design a protein food right now for people, you would never come up with a cow. That's Mark Post. He's a professor of physiology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and one of the researchers that New Harvest has funded. The consumption of meat on this planet is going to be a, a, well, a disaster, basically, because we cannot produce the amount of meat that people would need in 2050. It's just not possible. I uh, realized that this was going to be a huge problem that needed a, a radical solution. Like Andrew and Jenna, Mark Post fell into the food business almost by accident. About a decade ago, he was a doctor growing human tissue in a lab for medical purposes. He realized the same technology could grow edible tissue, meat. In 2013, he became the first person in the world to produce a specimen of lab-grown cow meat. But how do you even begin to grow a hamburger in a Petri dish? Well, you start with rump roast. 
a big needle um, that you uh, poke in the in in the butt of a cow um, and get a small sliver of muscle out. From that tiny piece of muscle, we can create thousands of kilos of meat because the cells can replicate that much. And uh, that uh, allows us to reduce the number of cows um, in the world and therefore reduce all the externalities like greenhouse gas emission and um, uh, eating up of resources. So theoretically, you could do this with just about any animal. You could do it for chicken, for Norwegian salmon, for zebra, if people like game meat but didn't want to kill a bunch of creatures in the Serengeti? That's correct, yes. When does it start looking like meat? It doesn't really in the cell proliferation stage. Um, So one cell merges with another, with another, with another, until you have fibers, primitive fibers of about 100 cells. The eventual fiber, the eventual tissue that comes out of it um, is not more than two and a half centimeters, so an inch long and one millimeter in diameter. That's it. So what you typically do is you create, uh, well, in our case for the hamburger that we made, 10,000 of these individual fibers and put them together in a patty. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you buy ground meat and you mush the meat strands together and plop it on the grill and that's the hamburger. Correct. What was the initial cost of the first hamburger patty that you produced in this lab? That was a whopping $330,000. That is a really, really expensive hamburger. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even that good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did you eat that $330,000 hamburger patty? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> what did it taste like? <laughs> uh, like hamburger, like a regular hamburger. Um, a little bit drier because there was no fat tissue in it yet. And how much are you hoping to sell it for in the future? If you would scale up production to the scale that we envision is possible, um, it would cost about $10, $12 for a hamburger. Do we have the technology to create a ribeye steak, a filet mignon, a porterhouse, T-bone? Is the technology that versatile? In theory, we can. Um, I haven't seen anybody do it yet. Right now... I don't, obviously in vitro meat is not going to be more popular than natural grown meat. But something in what you're saying makes me think that as this technology matures, we not only have the potential to make it healthier, we also have the potential to make it more delicious, to precisely control the amount of fat that is in our patties or in our fillets. Can you envision a future where in vitro meat is seen by many, many people as superior, not because of the environmental effects, but because of the taste, because we have so much more control over what the food tastes like. I do believe that. Here in the Netherlands, for instance, we have a a pretty mediocre quality of the meat because it's basically a byproduct of dairy. And it's very unpredictable what you buy if you buy a steak in the Netherlands. It could be juicy and good. It could also be a piece of leather. You have actually no idea what you are buying. And I've said this from the beginning, that this is one of the benefits of cultured meat, consistent quality. Are you targeting vegetarians and vegans with in vitro meat, or are you targeting meat eaters? I've actually spoken to a lot of vegetarians and vegans, and I asked them, please never start eating cultured meat. Huh. Um, Don't eat my product. 
right, don't eat my product, please. Because, you know, we are never going to be as efficient as just plants. So in my mind, vegetarians and especially vegans for food security and for the environment and of course also for animal welfare are already doing sort of the maximum thing. And if they start to eat cultured meat, it would be the next best thing. So we are really focusing on the 95% uh, meat eaters that um, are just weak and cannot really refrain from eating meat. I have to be honest with you. Um, I am the weak 95%. Uh, I do so eat I. meat. <laughs> You're <laughs> so weak as well. Oh, okay. Well, from <laughs> yeah, one absolutely. weak person to another. <laughs> right. More than crickets or veggie burgers, lab-grown meat has the potential to solve the world's meat crisis because in a world obsessed with meat, it is. But there are two caveats. First, an energy question. Moving meat production from the fields to the lab would obviously save huge amounts of land, water, greenhouse gas emissions. It's not so obvious that it would reduce energy output. There are still quite a few uncertainties, especially on the energy side of things. I think in the end, energy is not our biggest issue. You know, with the sun and the wind, we have more than enough energy on this planet. We just need to harvest it smartly. I'm more concerned about the feedstock. So if land is reduced, then the feedstock that goes into this material is also uh, reduced. And that's, that's very good news. But the second problem is cultural. The prevailing food trend in the West today is toward localism and all-natural diets. It's hard to imagine something less local and less natural than stem cells taken out of a cow's butt and grown into little meat strands in a Dutch laboratory. To which Post says, We are kind of biologically programmed not to eat stuff that we don't know. And that has all to do with, uh, with safety. That's why I'm stressing so much that we, that I'm, I'm actually very much in favor of having to prove towards an independent body that this is absolutely safe, because that will help a little bit in the storytelling and the marketing. Fixing this problem won't just take great tech. It will take great storytelling. We'll have to persuade people to eat stuff they think is gross. But we've done it before. During World War II, there was a great fear that we were going to run out of food. Professor Christine Costello again. You're going to lose a war if people are starving, right? So the government commissioned a panel of people and said, OK, we want the American domestic population to start eating organ meats. People think they're gross. People think that they're for poor people. What are we going to do? And so they convened this huge team, spent a huge amount of effort into figuring out how to convince people to eat these organ meats. They realized that they needed to target wives, they started making all these amazing recipes. They put them into all kinds of women's magazines. And all of a sudden, people were eating these meats, right? They also wrapped it up in a, you're helping the war effort, right? And we ate the organ meat. We ate the organ meat. What did we <laughs> it call it? I assume they weren't selling it as organ meat. I mean, you know, liver, right? Liver and onions. I feel like my grandma made that for me a few times. Maybe she, maybe she, because she read a housekeeping magazine and during the World War II era. But advertising people know how to make something sound appealing, right? <laughs> the environmental engineering nerds maybe don't aren't so good at that. <laughs> Eating is complicated. It's not just chewing and swallowing. Food is nostalgia. When I see Sour Patch Kids, I think of sticky movie floors in Northern Virginia. 
It's emotion. When I've had a terrible day, nothing calms me down like fried chicken and a beer. But most interestingly, our taste buds send information to the parietal lobe, which helps form identity. We ask, am I the sort of person who would eat this? I'm going to be honest with you. I am the sort of person who eats steak and fried chicken. I think veggie burgers taste like recycled cardboard. But I am also the sort of person who cares about the environment, who thinks it is ghastly to torture animals when there is so much else to eat. And I'm excited for food technology that can invent a bigger diet for humans and a better one for the planet. The first agricultural revolution 11,000 years ago actually shrank our diet from a multi-course menu of fruit, nuts, and insects to a regular diet of wheat and meat. Maybe we can have a second agriculture revolution, one that doesn't shrink the menu, but expands it. My advice to people is eat less meat, first of all. Replacing half of your animal-based protein with plant-based protein would go a long way to achieving um, some of these goals that we have. Don't waste food. Um, if you're going to waste food, don't let it be the meat portion. So if you're having a barbecue or something, you know, you want to make more pasta salad and be willing to run out of your delicious, like, burnt ends or beef brisket or whatever you got going on. You know, we have an amazing capacity for food science, right? So be open to these novel foods in the future. Eat food, less meat, more novelty. I can live with that. I mean, that's just great. It tastes like a salty cracker. Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Kash Mihailovic, with help from Agerenesh Ashagre. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Special thanks to Matt Thompson. And a special thanks to Dr. Kyra Bobinet for her help with this episode. If you like what you just heard, please take a minute to review us on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way you can help us get noticed and heard by other people. See you next week.